January 2017, and a special access elevator opens onto the 35th floor of the Vancouver General Hospital's Jim Patterson Pavilion. A series of laboratories has been leased out here to the cream of British Columbia's dynamic entrepreneurial startup sector. Young and innovative scientists have come here from all over the world in their effort to develop the next disruptive technologies and one of these is being selectively tested behind walls of the utmost secrecy that this podcast series has been able to surmount. I'm Noah Richler, and welcome to the eighth and final episode of 128 Sterling, Vancouver Biotech Startup Launches World's First Book Pill. What drove me to develop the pill is the simple fact that life is too short, and there are too many books I always wanted to read. Some of my students have tried the pill, and I have to say I am extremely excited about the avenues this pill is opening. As we get into these new forms of story delivery, I think we create entirely new kinds of narrative possibilities. It started out as a joint venture, and I think very quickly it's become of interest to, well, you know what, I I just remember I've been told not to tell you. As biotechnology explains ever more of the mysteries of human behavior, it was surely inevitable that a pill be developed to substitute for the effort, inconvenience, and expense of reading. Imagine, it's easily done, the simple consumption of a pill, rendering redundant not just the 20 hours needed to consume the average book, but the infrastructure required to support the very act of reading, whether shelves and libraries for physical books or tablets and smartphones and modems for electronic reading. The transfer of knowledge through digestion is a thrilling prospect, and one, interestingly, with precedence among the ancient Greeks, certain that food will bring us closer to God, among Egyptians eating papyri and convinced that what was inscribed would be learned, or among Inuit, believing the spirit of the hunted animal is transferred to the family that eats it. Even in this post-truth world, it's hard to believe a book pill might contain all the complexity of a novel by Marcel Proust or James Joyce, novels few of us have actually read, and far more of us might eat. But this is to be the imminent result of biotechnology and pills that will be available upon pharmacy shelves and possibly provided by Medicare. We owe the development of the book pill to Irina Kovalyova, the Russian-born Canadian author of the short story collection Specimen. The 2016 winner of the Kobo Emerging Writer Award, Irina Kovalyova is a former NASA intern and forensic analyst, a microbiologist by trade, and senior partner in the Vancouver biotech firm that, ahead of its IPO, we agreed would not be named. So we've been developing a new generation of implantable electrodes, and we would listen directly to the brain's electrical rhythms. We started by having subjects read short passages from various books, such as The Island of Dr. Moreau, one of my favorite novels, a science fiction novel by A.G. Wells. And, you know, we've been able, first with one millimeter electrodes, to record the raw electrical data. And afterwards, we collaborated with software engineers and designed molecular brain waves that corresponded to sounds of speech. So, for example, the difference between the sh sound versus the s sound. And, of course, we knew that other researchers in the world were developing technology that could allow people to internalize thoughts into language and action, uh, but um, 
we decided to strip it down. Now, obviously, I cannot give away, you know, my trade secrets, but uh, let's say that there was a lot of magnetic resonance uh, imaging involved. We use radioactive isotopes of glucose, which is a sugar that our brain consumes. And uh, we stripped it down to really basic, basic neurological processes that mimic something that happens when you read. Irina Kovalyova, help me in understanding what the pill actually does. Does it convey the memory of a sequence of words as we might encounter on the page or a combination of moods and sentiments? We, we really wanted to give our subjects, our readers, a complete experience. And amygdala, which is a teeny almond-shaped structure, plays a central role in emotional processes, things like fear, particularly in the formation of emotional memories. And reading, for most people, of course, is an emotional experience. So what we tried to go after was the molecular mechanisms that will enable the readers to experience everything that comes with it, uh, the entire integrative experience of reading a certain novel. So the emotional impact, the overall, I suppose, after effects that can linger. And uh, I have to say that our controls were quite encouraging. We ran through a number of predictive sequences, including the voice synthesizers, and people were giving us back exact passages. It started out as a joint venture, and I think very quickly it's become of interest to, um, well, you know what, I, I just remember I've been told not to tell you. Dr. Vincent Lamb is an addictions expert, a biographer of Canadian Medicare pioneer Tommy Douglas, and the author of The Flu Pandemic and You. He's also remembered in certain rarefied communities as the 2006 winner of Canada's Scotiabank Giller Prize for Literature for Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures, short stories it's rumoured he wrote, as so many doctors do, in the intervals between keeping patients waiting. Even before its tentative approval by the HBFB, the Health Products and Food Branch of the Government of Canada, proprietary rights to the book pill Kovalyova pioneered are being contested. Lamb, once a partner, explains the breakthrough, now the subject of an acrimonious lawsuit, that he attributes to his experience of the SARS epidemic and his own work on patterns of dependency among homeless and drug dealers. A few years ago, a, a new change took place in the development process, and we shifted towards an immunological paradigm. And what I mean by this is that we realize that when people read a book in the traditional old-fashioned sense, which will soon be obsolete, they react to it. Just in the same way that your body might react to some sort of bacteria to which it's exposed or peanut butter, if one has a particular sensitivity to peanut butter, the body's immune system reacts to a book and the immune system actually reconfigures itself around the experience of the book and the traces of this can be detected and ultimately these traces can be converted into a pill. I think what this book pill does is it turns a lot of how we've usually interacted with patients uh, on its head. It's really turned it upside down. Dr. Andrew Buzari is a resident physician at Toronto St. Michael's Hospital and an avid reader. That combination led the doctor to an important discovery when, faced with an agitated patient, he offered a novel he was reading, Zoe Whittle's The Best Kind of People, to calm the man down. Dr. Bazzari has worked with government, but prefers to be on the front lines of medicine, and bibliotherapy has become a treatment in his cabinet. No surprise, then, that he should be involved in the evaluation of the book pill as a medical aid. 
I think there's always been something around the humanities in medicine, from Chekhov to Balkakov. Some of the best writers have been physicians. You know, early on, our therapies were limited and in many ways actually constrained to maybe no better than a physician being able to sit beside you by the moonlight and be able to hear your story when you were suffering from something like congestive heart failure or an issue like pneumonia. And so I think early on we had to sort of understand the power of the story of medicine, but also for patients to tell their story and to connect. From previous studies we've seen for providers or medical students, if they'd actually read an hour of Chekhov, they actually were able to score higher on empathy scores. And that's something that was always very compelling when we looked at how to best use literature or the humanities in medicine. And I was intrigued by the fact that we'd never really seen any control trial as to how the pill stacked up against the general control or placebo, which is reading a book, or potentially going without. And people have described different effects, different relationships, but we're still trying to figure out, I think, is there really a value in prescribing a pill to do this? But again, I think we need more and more research. Are you measuring responses in the short, mid, and long term? I imagine if you prescribe the Coelebec or Don DeLillo pill, mm-hmm. that might lead to despair or anger in the short term that you must believe will ultimately be elevating somehow. And I mean, that, and that's the real difficult question, as I think you are starting to look at some precarious prescribing as to how much is too much in the short term. This pill can't supplant the conversation between a physician and a patient. If you do not have the right understanding as to where they are in their life, you will never need to be able to know how much of what sort of pill, what sort of book they might need, uh, how much of it. And it's always hard to predict people's responses. Some of the early findings that we have right now uh, that are, I wouldn't say of concern, I'm sort of at you know, limits about what I can talk about is the results haven't been published. But some of the issues that have come up are around the side effect profile of emotional ability and how this can be something that's quite worrisome is that it can actually, for someone who might have struggled with depression before, reading this might actually have initially a euphoric response in the sort of short term, but in the long term might actually see them have more challenges around regulating their mood. That hopefully, if done appropriately and compassionately can be therapeutic. It can allow us to ask the questions that we sometimes might be pressed not to. I just don't think we've been able to weave patients into their lives that extend beyond the hospital or beyond the clinic or the waiting room. And this is the sort of work that we're trying to do now. We're trying to ensure that one, people aren't being harmed by this pill, but two, that potentially there is an avenue for health benefits. The language of science is illuminating, but it can also be excluding. Explanations for the therapy of stories that so interest Dr. Andrew Bazzari, those laboratory controls that pleased Irina Kovalyova, and the clinical talk of trace elements that animate the excitable Dr. Lamb emit a society that is increasingly recognized as having been ground zero of the impending revolution in edible books. In Silicon Valley, the talk is of humans being the vessels of data. In Nunavut, the language has always been of souls, but the idea is the same, and it's been around for thousands of years. We are what we eat, and we carry the information, call it data, call it a meme, of what we ingest. In the face of these assumptions, 
submitting ourselves to the laborious process of inscribing upon objects and then reading and interpreting and just possibly remembering the knowledge for which the script is a code seems a remarkably atavistic process. And if it seems that way, it's because it is. An acknowledgement and thanks are due the community that nurtured the idea that generated the book pill in the first place. Performance artist Lac Luke Williamson Bathory lives in the Kaluit in Nunavut, a fount of Inuit Kaujimaja Tukangit, traditional Inuit knowledge. She's not surprised that a cultural premise of her people has yet again been purloined and that no acknowledgement has been forthcoming. So, Lac Luke, thanks for taking my call. Where have I found you in the world? You found me at Avadak, at my cabin, actually. And this is um, not far from Kaluit, or where? It's about 25 kilometers east of Radovid, yes. And you go there to be by yourself or to practice your art or to write or to hunt? What do you do? Well, not so much to be by myself because I have so many kids, but everybody comes and we all eat and we all sleep and we hunt and melt water and look at the internet. Now, you know about this book pill, I understand. Yes, yeah, fascinating stuff. The idea that a person might consume a food that conveys ideas or nourishes the soul is not strange to Inuit. No, and, and I was quite surprised that something was appropriated that easily, but, you know, Inuit invented the kayak, and it's turned into the kayak, as you know. We also invented the anorak, otherwise known in English as the anorak, and we also invented the g-string, which is worn worldwide. Does then the idea that you might consume a pill and learn the ideas of a book seem strange or familiar to you? Both, actually. When you hunt an animal, it's not so much that it's the human being that is chasing after the animal. It's more like you're engaged in a communication, and in the end, the animal gives its soul up to you. And sure enough, when you eat, you're getting filled with nutrients and uh, heat and energy and fat and protein and all the rest of that. But it, it's doing more than that. It's a diet of souls. And the animal helps you become you more. And you're able to experience life fully because of that. So for you, Consuming Story is a kind of an experience of multiple senses is the impression I'm getting. Yes, absolutely. I know that. You are eating something that is nourishing your soul. You're eating a soul of the animal and it's becoming a part of who you are. And we all really want to be able to eat our food because of the stories and the cultural experience and personal history that's involved in eating it. And it makes sense that you take in the story and you become alive through your body and through your senses. But to be able to take a pill to take all that knowledge in seems like such a, an easy way out, actually. Because the effort means something in the story? Yes, the smell and the taste and the texture and all of that is, I think, quite important. Because as you're listening to it all, you take in your, the environment and then it reminds you of things that you've done in your life or it uh, allows you to smell in a way that you'd never previously considered before or you get flashbacks of something terrifying or you get moments of brilliance about what's to come. The process of listening to a story allows your senses to come alive 
So it, it is familiar and not so familiar at the same time. What smell would you get from the pill? What taste would you get from it? What texture besides the gelatin of it when you don't swallow it fast enough? It could be that you just end up with all of this knowledge swimming around in your synapses and your bloodstream and going around your brain, but you've never had any empirical experience of it all. But of course they have to thank us. They have to recognize us. It is a very competitive space, the non-reading reading market. The Inuit Business Association could do worse than to have Michael Tamblin on their side. Previously at the helm of the game-changing source of book-selling data, BookNet Canada, Tamblin is now president and CEO at one of the world's leading providers of tablets and the content to go with them. News so disruptive to his digital business, I thought, would distress him, but instead Tamblin was thrilled. The very properties of the book pill, threatening to turn the whole e-book industry into yesterday's news, are to Tamblin a harbinger, but also an opportunity. As we get into these new forms of story delivery, I think we create entirely new kinds of narrative possibilities that may not just only not require reading, but may be impossible to read. Do you imagine that we're going to have a Google Books-like effort to take all published work and put it in pill form? Or is that even necessary? Perhaps rather than a variety of titles, what we need are representative ones. I would imagine that we find ourselves in a situation where the research and development costs around the initial creation, the production, and the testing and regulatory process means that the production of new books becomes a very expensive process. A book could end up in the R&D and testing and approval cycle for years before it reaches the market. So we may find publishers in a situation where only four or five new books are being released in any given year, but that those become highly profitable because of either their habit-forming nature or the extent to which they're being broadly prescribed. So I think the indexing becomes less of an issue than it is in print books, but the tracking of new releases of books becomes much more important. Is this being watched by Heritage or by Health Canada? Well, I would imagine by both, and I think by the industry as well, because you would not just be worrying about issues related to Canadian content or issues related to copyright, but the whole question of generics. So as a patent expires on a particular pill-based book, do you then have the possibility of a company coming in and offering generics at a much lower price that have the same kind of experience behind them? And the cross-border issues in both directions become very interesting. Obviously, from U.S. into Canada, we have issues of parallel importation, differences in prices between books in the U.S. versus Canada. But going the other direction, there's been ongoing controversy about Canadian pharmacies providing much cheaper alternatives to U.S. pharmaceuticals. Why wouldn't that also be the case when we were looking at books delivered in pill form as well? We really wanted to give our subject to our readers a complete experience. Now, I know that Melanie Jolie, the heritage minister, is particularly keen on arts in the digital world. Has she any idea of just how disruptive is the fact of your pill? Well, that is, of course, a concern. The technology, of course, changing so rapidly. And as we all 
um, you know, witnesses to the demise of things like uh, DVDs and, and uh, tapes and so on. But, you know, technology does move on. Irina Kovalyova. The international commercial ramifications of the book pill don't just lie in matters of distribution. If the book pill conveys moods and sentiments, rather than the memory of a sequence of words, then it could well be that the translation of works is no longer necessary. Michael Tamblin. I think that would presume that the emotional palette by culture and country by country basis is the same. Who's to say that the range of emotions that's being experienced by someone in France, for example, is the same as what might be experienced in Canada or in the United Kingdom? We may just not experience the many different forms of outrage experienced by a French reader. A German reader may not be able to fully translate the many different kinds of apology and deference that a Canadian author is capable of expressing. And so there may still be the need for some form of translation that allows those cross-cultural emotional barriers to be bridged. Vincent Lamb. Translation is a very tricky technical problem. It matters a great deal that the reader absolutely must not be bilingual in the source language of the text and the translated language of the text. And I'll give you an example of what can happen. Say you have someone whom, unbeknownst to you, they are fluent both in Russian and English, and you give them Anna Karenina. Well, you would think that would be ideal, but because their impression of the book is a set of sensations which they can experience both in English and in Russian, very quickly you start to hear people going on in Russian, but they'll only speak what is in the book. It becomes incredibly confusing for their family members, very distressing. And so, you know, you must always ensure that your ideal reader is unilingual in the destination language. Dr. Andrew Buzari. So we've actually seen this come down the middle. So we've actually seen half of the individuals... So you would say take Tolstoy, or who would take Chekhov, or Bulgakov, you take your pick of, of Russian giants, half of them will actually be able to recite passages in English. But we're seeing an interesting effect where half would be able to reel off entire passages in what would be the Russian language at that time, as opposed to sort of how things have evolved now. So it's definitely... One of the things that I think is really opening up more and more interest about what this could also mean uh, for cognition, for memory, and actually what we've always been looking at as the pill for the enhancement of IQ. But again, it's, it's not entirely clear why certain individuals respond one way over the other. Michael Tamblin. The other thing that just as a sidebar needs to be dealt with as well is the actual identification of those books physically. As you know, it can be quite difficult to look at a handful of pills and figure out what it is that you're actually taking. So there will have to be directories that allow you to look at the pattern on a book and figure out what the implications are of taking too many, of combining them in ways that may lead to adverse effects. What happens when you do a double dose of J.K. Rowling at the same time as James Patterson? Do these interact badly? Are these things that can cause unintended consequences if incorrectly taken? 
If that's the case, then the need for trained prescription and the ability to manage interactions becomes that much more important. If it turns out that there's no problem at all and you can take a handful of randomly selected Canadian authors all at once and then experience the mix of those as they're digested and processed, then it could be something that is as unregulated as the nutritional supplements market. As far as side effects, uh, not only to individuals but also to the world at large. Irina Kovalyova. I can only see it being a very positive thing. We've tested uh, a limited number of individuals thus far. Most of our subjects were psychologists, student volunteers. Um, they get credit for participating in, in what we call a human subject pool, so they're very eager to participate. And none of them have thus far demonstrated anything untoward, only positive effects in many cases. A little bit of mood elevation, less taciturn behavior, more engagement with the world, more empathy overall. Uh, some, in fact, became much more energetic. And in case of one subject, uh, an increase in sinning. Uh, yes, reportedly, they were reluctant to engage in conversation. But after consuming the pill, they became much chirpier. So I anticipate uh, a general mood elevation and overall well-being. If I may, can I speak to your Russian roots somewhat? I don't know if you're designing a pill for, for instance, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov or Crime and Punishment. Uh -huh. Is there a danger in, say, a Dostoevsky or a Huelbeck or even Don DeLillo pill that we might actually increase the amount of general despair? It's a fair question. I personally do not think you can overdose on literature or, or, or overconsume it. Uh, yes, certainly some of the uh, works can be a little bit more brooding or, or mood-inducing. But, um, you know, speaking on the molecular level, it is certainly possible to hyperactivate uh, your brain um, in certain directions. So perhaps uh, certain precautions would have to be made. Um, everything is, after all, good in moderation. Even vitamins have a dosage, yes? Still so far from understanding what that dose response is going to be, how you're going to titrate, how much of certain author or certain book over another one at a different period of someone's life. And I think that's also the interesting bit, even how much of the book is about an interpersonal reaction with other people and the discussion around how they felt in terms of the differences, the similarities in the reaction and response. And is there some sort of bonding that happens as folks are able to experience those differences and reactions together? The company has put forward the issue that this is something that can be taken together, that this doesn't necessarily replace book clubs, but they've made it clear that this is something where folks can usually have a very similar sort of onset of action. So you could take it with five or six other people. The genomic differences might not actually change the metabolism all that much. So if you and I are able to go to your living room to have the pill, you might be able to have the onset of action or the, the feelings of that book about five to ten minutes earlier than myself. But in some sense, it's supposed to line up quite neatly. We're not sure of that. I mean, we've only been looking at it in individual responses. We're not entirely sure in terms of the metabolic issue about how closely related it's going to be and how people might be different metabolizers. Dr. Andrew Buzari. Issues of dosage are key, as is the problem of generics and of the hasty manufacture of a pill, the side effects of which are various and not yet completely understood. The prospect of the unintended is exacerbated by the already complex nature of the process by which conventional books do their job. The book clubs to which Buzari alludes, and the book sections and literary reviews of newspapers and magazines, almost boundless in their responses, only serve to underscore the multiple nature of human reactions to the very same text. 
James Joyce's Ulysses might induce delirious excitement in some readers, but catatonia in others, and yet the book, precursor to the pill designed to contain its singularity and its genius, is the same in each case. This challenge to pharmaceutical design has potentially grave consequences from resistance to the pill or sets of pills in the case of longer books to side effects ranging from euphoria to anomie, reactions that, paradoxically, may have constituted the very reason the book pill was consumed in the first place. The solution to this problem lies in rendering into an imitable imprint a relationship with readers that a majority of writers spends a lifetime seeking. Dr. Vincent Lamb. The production of the books in and of itself is an immunological process. You know, we derive these immunological imprints of books from readers. And what this means is that for every book, it's very important to find the ideal reader. Now, what is the ideal reader? I certainly can appreciate that many authors out there are rolling their eyes because they've been asked this question time and time again upon stages around the world, who's your ideal reader? And invariably, authors evade this question and either claim there's no ideal reader or perhaps they've never met their ideal reader. But it just so happens that if we want to make an immunological imprint of the book, we have to find the ideal reader for that book so that the immunological imprint can represent the book as closely as possible. Are there problems of resistance? If a person consumes too many pills of a particular genre, is there a worry that he, she, or they will be inured to whatever is its content and value? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that there's resistance. One of the tricky things with immunology is there's a, a certain degree of unpredictability. So let's take a simple example. If you eat peanut butter and you don't have a peanut allergy, you'll be fine. If you do have a peanut allergy and you are exposed to peanut butter, potentially even in small quantities, there can be a, a fatal anaphylactic reaction. But one of the great things about the publishing industry is that it has become more and more compartmentalized and more and more defined by genre and there are all these sort of helpful online things which say, okay, this is what the book is about. So that allows us to streamline our offerings. And, and this makes perfect sense. For instance, let's keep the example simple. If you take a dedicated science fiction writer and give them a science fiction book pill, well, you know they'll be fine. If you give them a fantasy pill, they'll probably be fine. You're taking a bit of a risk if you give them experimental poetry. Now, they might prove to be quite adaptable as an immunological reader. This is what we call the new breed of readers. But, you know, if you had high cholesterol, you would never think of taking a diabetes pill, would you? And if you had an infection, say, you would never dream of taking an antihistamine for your infection. So this is all about streamlining the books for the reader. Are there traits that are common to a set of genres that might create side effects. I'm thinking, for instance, of cliché or even stylistic adventure that might be irritating to some. Yes, this is a common issue, and, and this is usually not catastrophic, but it can cause certain anxieties and restlessnesses. Chills and sweats are, are common when people have the sort of irritant that you described. So, for instance, say you take a, a dedicated reader of Westerns, and you give them literary fiction, which, as we all know, uh, by definition contains no plot. 
right? Well, the reader of the cowboy adventure will become quite agitated. And likewise, if you if you take the reader of literary fiction and you give them a self-published novel which contains extensive word repetition, mm, vomiting can occur, and it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. So let's just say that it is important for people to read the waiver before consuming the pill. Some of my students have tried the pill, and I, I myself have tried it. And I have to say I am extremely excited about the avenues this pill is opening. The Newfoundland novelist Lisa Moore, three times nominated for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, is also an associate professor at Memorial University in St. John's. An impassioned advocate of literature's responsibility not only to writers but to readers at the margins, she's been contending with charges of literary harassment since volunteering a number of her students to Dr. Kovalyova as test subjects allegedly against their will. But Moore remains defiant, a resolute supporter of the pill despite its occasionally adverse effects. I think that what the pill does is that it bioaccumulates in the body. So what we have are many different books that can resurface like a blush. And you have access to all of those voices and all of those visions. And when you look out on the world, the world is transformed by what I think is a very brilliant lens of literature and everything is in a new kind of technicolor. Is the consumption of the pill a social event? Can you imagine a group of students or perhaps a writer's collective such as your own Burning Rock taking the same pill together or is it accentuating the solitary experience of reading? I tend to think it it accentuates the solitary experience. I walk around downtown and you notice when someone has taken the book pill because they're walking along, they're very absorbed in whatever it is they're feeling and experiencing of the book, and you can see them suddenly chuckle or startle because something of a plot twist has just coursed through their veins. And I think that... It's a very intimate experience and solitary, but only in the most profoundly positive way. Michael Tamblin. The potential for side effects is quite high. Even in print-based consumption of books today, one can experience sweating, increased heart rate, or even nausea. There's certainly the potential for a much wider range of side effects when we start to deliver books in pill form, all of which would have to be tested. So then we end up with an editorial cycle that is already quite long, can take years for books to be written, edited, and then finally make their way into the reader's hands. What happens when they also have to go through a series of double-blind performance trials across a representative sample of potential readers in order to ensure that there aren't more harmful side effects lurking beneath the surface? I'm quite upset by the prospect of such an outrageous move into this format. Gary Barwin, a poet, composer, and another of this podcast's Scotiabank Giller nominees for his hysterically funny novel Yiddish for Pirates, lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and so he knows a thing or two about what the misuse and abuse of drugs can do. And if that doesn't make him ill at ease, then the decision to turn his novel into a book pill certainly does. 
the publisher feels that this will be a more effective and convenient method of conveying what they deem as the content of the book. But I don't have any say at all. And to me, it would be like going on a pilgrimage, but instead of climbing a mountain or going on a hike, you just take a pill. And one of the other things that books do is I have all these books on my shelf. People come for dinner and they can see the books. And not only are they very impressed at my collection and what I've read, of course, they're in awe, but also we actually have a meaningful discussion. There's that social aspect of books and talking about them and seeing them and being able to share the process of having read them, not just having absorbed them. So I think that puzzling over them together and seeing them in the environment is an important part of it. And that you can see the array of books so people can then share the physicality of the books rather than just all these little pills. We're going to have like medicine cabinets on our wall and people open them up to look at what pills we have or what pills we're planning to have. I don't think it's a good idea. I'm not against having supplements. You know, you can dose yourself with vitamin C and then you can come to the book. But do you think we're being elitist or snobs? Isn't there a greater benefit? Aren't you more successful if 100 people ingest the Gary Bowen Yiddish for Pirates book pill as opposed to 10 people splashing out for the book proper? Oh, I mean, I've also got lawyers who were worried about overdoses. What happens if some child takes 10 of my books at once? Like, what would that do? I mean, I, I know I've tested it for taking one of my books at a time, but what, if somebody took a handful of, of my books, what would, what would happen? I'm concerned about some sort of Yiddish for pirate syndrome and people being rushed to hospital. It could be a problem. It'd be like Don Quixote overdosing on romance books. It was a problem, right? Andrew Bizzari. The addictive profile is something I think that's of concern. It seems like there is a perfect storm for the individual who might be more susceptible to dependence on the book pill in that it is able to unleash just such strong emotional reactions so quickly. But there's also something about folks who, interestingly enough, really are drawn to some of the pills that have obviously been more associated with pain and hurt and suffering. So you really do see a real wide range of effects. You can see folks who do have these euphoric responses running around uh, the hospital, which has been harder to control. But then you also see folks who really do retreat into themselves. And, and again, I think this is why we really do need extensive evaluations, because we're not entirely sure what the long-term effect is going to be on folks, especially on folks who've had a history of mental health. We can see early positive effects, but I do wonder and I do worry what that might mean for that patient a year or two years down the road. One of the general criteria for addiction is that, you know, an addiction is something which people will do to the detriment of other obligations, social obligations, work obligations, and so on. Vincent Lamb. And it's quite common that people, when they start taking book pills, become drawn into it. They need to take more and more of the book pills, so the dose needs to increase. You know, they may start with one book pill, and the next thing you know, it's three, four, five book pills. This is what happens. They find that if they stop taking the book pills, they have this horrible sense of loneliness. They begin to feel quite soon that life is worthless, and some even say devoid of meaning. And the only solution is to provide them with more book pills. Thankfully, you know, the book pills can be consumed quite rapidly, and I'll go in just a minute because I myself have to take some book pills. A lot of people can continue to be functional in society and hide their addiction. It's what we call a functional addiction. It can be quite sad. There's anecdotal reports of people consuming book pills that lead them, for instance, to hide in public washrooms. Yeah, um, we find that for very severe cases, there's what we call substitution therapy. And this comes from many other addiction treatments where there's a substitution of the intoxicating substance with something which is sort of 
bland and doesn't give the same sort of highs, but keeps people from going to withdrawal. So for people who are profoundly addicted to book pills, we've developed social media pills. And so then they can be fed this steady diet of not very meaningful content. And that keeps their book receptors firing at a low level without being overly engaged. What drove me to develop the pill is uh, really the simple fact that life is too short. And there are too many books I always wanted to read. There's nothing ersatz about Irina Kovalyova, Russian in her core, and there's no question that the quality of the book pill regimen her firm has been developing should do anything less than honor the literary tradition that spawned her. We are definitely going after the classics. That's what we are after. We want to get everybody on the same page, forgive the expression. Make things like journalism, you know, art, movies, political speeches much more accessible to general population. I have an extensive library that started out as a sort of book depository, and I was able to keep it up for a while. But then it started to balloon, really, into must-read next week section, then it was read next week, next section, next month, next year, before I die section, until it basically filled my entire bedroom. And one day I walked in there and it sort of struck me that it would be wonderful for me or for anyone to be able to consume all the knowledge contained therein without spending a lifetime doing it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my life I was lost and felt, frankly, intellectually inferior to people who would mention this famous work or that famous author, and I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. I I felt inadequate. This was one of the main drives for me to create the pill that would enable me to read the important works of literature without actually reading them. The goal is to move, you know, not just to book as supplement, Michael Tamblin. But book as ongoing prescription that's required for long-term well-being. We want people to be signing up for six months of refills of Lori Moore. We want people to be on 30-day regimens of the latest Giller Prize novelist. That's where I think the business side of the idea of being able to much more easily incorporate non-reading, pill-based reading into daily life becomes very interesting. You know, I think that literature is actually the antibiotic. The pill that looms as the next financial bonanza to a figure such as Michael Tamblin is, to Lisa Moore, a desperately needed economic panacea for Newfoundland in dire circumstances after the collapse of the price of oil. Though there's also the worry that the book pill might become a sort of fentanyl. You know, we're looking at extreme austerity measures with the uh, drop in the price of oil and the expense of muskrat falls. And I've got students who are in desperate need of that pill. And so I really would like it if we could get equal access to the pill for students regardless of economic disparity. I'd just like to see it available across all sectors. If the university is able to acquire these pills, does that mean you'll be ditching all your photocopiers? You know, I think it'll be great when we aren't reliant on the hard copy of the book. I know that people go on and on about, you know, the smell of a book, the feel of a book. And I I sort of feel that's a kind of nostalgia. And of course, there's likely to be a revolution in the means of distribution as well. I know that your confrere, Edward Rich, is constantly monitoring to see that his books are available at what? The single chapters outlet in St. John's, is that right? Yes. How many bookstores Uh, are there in in St. John's? Well, we have three right now. And how many pharmacies are there? I couldn't count them all. Fascinating. Personally, I'm concerned about some of the inequities that could actually be exacerbated by this pill. Andrew Bizzari. 
you know, this elitist factor as to what you'd prescribe certain patients from different literacy populations, from different income or socioeconomic classes. And so you do worry, and we always do worry with new technologies, that in many ways they widen the inequality, um, would be able to have the ability to pay. So I haven't had many conversations with policymakers or government at this point about whether they think this is something that's worth folding in under you know, our Medicare system. You know, I wouldn't be, I'd be, wouldn't be surprised if they want to see the evidence. They want to see the cost effectiveness. They want to see how this might stack up against an antidepressant, against maybe just reading a book. But if it isn't funded, uh, I do worry that, you know, we've already have these issues in the education gap. Are we just going to worsen it? And is this going to call, you know, fall across racial or ethnic divides? Those are all very real concerns. Michael Tamblin. If the consumption of a book becomes so ubiquitous, is there the potential for a resistance to build up in the population as a whole? If it's broadly prescribed, does the overall impact of that book start to go down over time? Especially if the prescription or distribution of these books is done carelessly and for a broader range of reasons than was originally considered either by the author or by the initial publisher. I think the other thing that we have to be concerned about is the possibility of these being created in much less regulated circumstances. Do we have basement labs? Do we have illegal creation of these works that then make their way out onto the street and potentially putting populace at harm? What do you think this means for actual writers? I wonder if writers are coming to face with evidence of their surplus. This is where I think the potential for illegal production becomes much more significant. If it really is the case that publishers are only providing a few new lines of literature at a time due to excess R&D costs and regulatory overheads, then the impulse becomes that much greater for an author to effectively start cooking their own and getting them out on the street through illicit means. Lisa Moore. I want to make sure that producers of the pill are aware of the wealth of stories that are coming from alternative communities and that those pills are available, because I think that's where the most innovative and exciting voices are coming from. Those stories that we haven't heard before create new styles and use new language. And when we read those stories, we're learning to think new thoughts. Well, it's, it's not entirely true that there is nothing for Newfoundland in the line so far, though I understand that there is some criticism around the palatability of the pills on offer in this first run, that E.J. Pratt's Poetry is salty, or that there's concern in the African-Canadian community that Gene Toomer's cane tastes of sugar, that Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man tastes quite anodyne. Is there any discussion around the pills preparation? Well, I have tasted Michael Kermy's Galore, and it was a little like eating sea urchin. I'll just tell you that there was an aftertaste. But while we're on the subject, I have to say that my own books haven't been made into a pill yet. And I am just wondering why that would be. I'm feeling a little left out. Is this a a discussion you need to have with the pharmaceutical company or with Anansi, your publisher? Well, I would like Anansi to get in there and talk to those pharmaceutical companies and be a little more proactive. Would you feel compelled to write differently if Anansi did actually get going and make a deal to sell your works as pills? My own experience of uh, ingesting the books will definitely affect the way I write. Um, 
but I would definitely like to be at a cocktail party, say, um, with, you know, a fizzy drink and talking to someone who has just swallowed one of my books. Does any part of you worry that um, an irresponsible date might pop one of your books as pills into the drink of a partner? Well, you know, Noah, you've called me out here because I have actually, I have actually given a book to someone I'm close to and they didn't know they were ingesting it. And uh, perhaps I crossed a line there, but, uh, you know, I do feel that our loved ones should be experiencing our books. Irina Kovalyova. We've been trying a few different flavors. My daughter suggested, um, you know, kind of like children's Tylenol, but for adults. Uh, so we've done uh, cherry, strawberry, uh, vanilla coffee is very, seems to be popular with my postdocs, and wine flavored as well. You know, in a conventional way, people consume literature with a glass of wine. I think wine flavored will be a good one. I hope this podcast has made clear that what scientists have been developing and marketers relishing, writers, not only Inuit, have understood for some time. That's always the first step, the story behind an idea. Toronto author Russell Smith imagines, in his exquisite short story, Reynolds and the Theory of Dream, a latter-day Don Juan of a bachelor who'll typically take the woman whose name he can't remember to the local Cineplex theatre. There, unexpectedly, on one fateful date, he stumbles upon a film not listed in the schedules, and it obsesses him. Just a glimpse of it from the corridor convinces him it's a work of art. The movie functions as the book pill does, conveying, without the words he cannot hear, he just sees blue on a screen, life-altering revelations. From that moment on, Reynolds pursues the mysterious movie that may or may not exist, and the effort is a part of the exercise. There are lessons here. Appreciating or consuming a work of art does involve a certain amount of work. We have to actively engage with it. It's not a passive experience, but an active one. And this is where the idea of the book pill is really difficult and troubles a lot of people who believe that the work of art must engage confrontation, not just consumption, but active participation. And that doesn't fit the idea of the pill at all. You know, a lot of people would say that that's pretentious, that the artist should be one, the one doing all the work and that we want our viewers or readers to be entertained and to not have to do any work at all. And if they have to, then we're failed. But we all know that no matter how easy and accessible the artwork, a certain amount of work or engagement is always required from the reader. If, however, this pill is successful, what happens if previously exclusive experiences are general? What happens, for instance, if everybody has read James Joyce's Ulysses or Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov? Is the actual artistic experience the same? So I would say yes. But aren't you suggesting too, though, Noah, don't you have to be nervous that you're not suggesting a kind of elitism in which we want to maintain boundaries around the class of people who have put in the effort and those who have it? There's a certain snob appeal to this idea of this elite class who has put in the work. We don't want to give up the pleasure of the work to people who don't want to put in that effort. In a sense, it's anti-democratic. I mean, the public education system does seek to make great works like pills that they can distribute evenly. Gary Barwin.
I think literature is a process, not just a, a product. And so you're missing this key part of literature. Whatever subtlety it can give you in terms of language, in terms of content, even in terms of form, you need to walk through it, you need to think and read and digest, not just some little thing that can just be absorbed without any effort. I mean, the only thing that would be good in pill form maybe is a family holiday where you can take Christmas and then you're done with it and then you can move on. But we need the process of literature. It seems to me that we're constantly in pursuit of reaping the reward of actions without actually exerting effort. We like to slim without exercise, to walk rather than run, and virtual reality offers us the chance to be in the Pantheon in Rome without actually going. What is being lost? Is it something spiritual? I think it's the difference between wanting to be happy as opposed to being satisfied, and then the satisfaction can lead to, a, I guess, a deeper happiness. I mean, I think we have to understand that it's like the road not taking the frost poem. It's like, well, no, I can have both roads. I don't have to make these difficult decisions. I don't have to reckon with things. I don't have to think through or go through the process, which enlarges the person, which, which deepens the experience. I don't like to say no pain, no gain, but there is some element of some sort of work, of some sort of focus, of some sort of dedication to a task, to an art form that results in some significant result. And it doesn't mean that the dedication has to be difficult or a misery. It can be a delight and a satisfaction, but there is the process. Irina Kovalyova. A concern that I had most of all, of course, as a writer myself, what does my development mean for actual writers? And um, the answer to that is the writers will still, of course, need to be around. In fact, the need for the written works will increase, if anything as people would read their writing faster. So I think this is an excellent news for all concerned. Andrew Bizzari. My understanding from the mechanism uh, of the pill is that it's sort of able to set off this sort of symphony of neurotransmitters. And so that I very rarely use the term brilliant, but it's really a brilliant sequence of neurotransmitter function and neurotransmitter response that we have not actually seen in modern medicine. Russell Smith. We have the happy pill, we have the horny pill, we have the sleeping pill. We want the more complex responses. That's what only book pills can do. Lisa Moore. The thing is expediency. We can conceivably digest all of the world's literature in a lifetime. And I think that that just provides an incredible opportunity. In Vancouver Biotech Startup launches world's first book pill, the eighth and concluding podcast of this debut series of 128 Sterling, you heard from Gary Barwin, Lucluke Williamson Bathory, Andrew Bazari, Irina Kovalyova, Vincent Lamb, Lisa Moore, Russell Smith, and Michael Tamblin. The links and true details of all these contributors' works can be found on the 128 Sterling page of the House of Anansi website. 128 Sterling is produced for the House of Anansi with help from the Canada Council for the Arts and is presented by me, Noah Richler. A big thank you is due to all the episodes contributing authors, to our series reader Janet Porter, and to the musician Charles Spiron. At the House of Anansi, thanks go to web whizzes Carolyn McNeely and Neil Wadhua, and to Matt Williams and Sarah McLaughlin for the commissioning. Till next time, and I do hope there'll be a next time, goodbye. And thanks for listening. <laughs>